Good morning. <clears throat> I'm going to read the ser- sermon text um, from John 4, 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down. Before my child dies, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that the son was recovering. So he asked them the hour, and he began to get better. They said, Yesterday, At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew, what the father knew was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dave Hopping. I am the pastor of Emerging Generations here at uh, New Life Dresher. <laughs> Thanks. It's really, I like that it's not like a bubble saying hi, it's just floating out of my mouth. It's fun. Um, I'm not a, they did this to me in the first service, so I'm a little less alarmed than I was then. Um, for those of you who are new, we do this every week for every pastor that gets up. Uh, no, uh, I, if you are new, I, I just got ordained a few weeks ago, and so it's, it's an honor to be here and to be able to officially say I'm the pastor of Emerging Generations. Uh, what that means is I oversee the um, junior high, senior high, and young adult ministries here at uh, New Life Treasure. So um, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, support and encouragement you guys have, have given me over these last uh, few years. Um, if you've been with us uh, the last few, uh, well, since September, honestly, we've been uh, started in the book of John, and uh, we've, been, we've been walking through it. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, the Samaritan woman. So we spent about three weeks talking about the Samaritan woman. Today we're in a, a new part of the passage with a new individual, so we'll probably spend about four months on that. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, so, so uh, I'm going to just kind of jump right in here to give us a little bit of a, a background before we, we jump in. Uh, the last few weeks, like I said, we've been looking at a Samaritan woman, and, and as Jesus uh, entered into Samaria, uh, you remember, he, he shows up at this well, it's midday, there's no one there except this one woman. And so as he comes in, um, there's not this great fanfare or huge miracles uh, in his arrival. Uh, and yet, um, 
like all that happens is just this honest interaction with a with a Samaritan woman, uh, where he confronts her with the truth of the gospel. Uh, and but then we see that through her testimony, and then the the people from the town coming in and hearing his words, this town is basically converted. Like they become believers in in Jesus. We see that in chapter four, verse forty two. Um, and so today, in today's passage, we see Jesus finishing this journey that he started in the beginning of chapter 4, where he's heading from Jerusalem up to uh, Galilee. And, and if you recall, I think we talked about this in chapter 2, um, Galilee is Jesus' homeland. Um, he was from Nazareth, which is in Galilee, and it was in chapter 2 we saw him in Cana, uh, which is in Galilee, and he, he turns the water into wine there. Um, and, and I wanted to point out, and this was at the beginning of the passage that was read, John makes a, an interesting statement, I think, at the beginning of this passage. Uh, look at verse um, 444. 444, it says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, home, in his own hometown. Which is, you know, that's, that's in, um, we see Jesus say this in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 13, and it's in direct response to people who are, are questioning uh, who he is or, or what authority he has. But for some reason, John reminds us of that here, that a prophet's not welcome in his own town. But then the very next verse he tells us, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And I thought that was kind of odd. It seems like a, a weird contrast that he just told us that he's not welcome, but then they, he was welcomed. And, and I think... Uh, I think John does that to kind of start to bring something out, right? We come from Samaria where there's not a lot of fanfare. It's just Jesus teaching and, and these people come to believe him. But now we're going to enter into a different situation here in Galilee. And, and I think that this odd contrast that John is using begins to point to the question of what does it mean to actually welcome Jesus? Um, and so for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to look at three different questions. They're, they're in your bulletin there. Um, what is it that we want from Jesus? What does Jesus want from us? And are we taking Jesus at his word? Uh, join me in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you that you do not leave us alone in darkness. Lord, you do not leave us alone in trouble. You come, you bring us light, you bring us life. And so, Lord, right now I pray that we would have open hearts, open ears, open minds. I pray that you would be with me, um, help me to speak your truth, um, and I just pray that you would be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what is it that we want from Jesus? You know, as I was thinking through this, uh, kind of how this all works, I, was, I thought of this illustration earlier in the week, but then I didn't, I didn't want to use it because it's pretty controversial. Um, but then even up to last night, I was like, I think this is the only one I can use. So I have to apologize right off the bat. Um, I'm a Steelers fan. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one, woo! Um, and, and so here's the thing. So, so I'm a Steelers fan, and a few, uh, this past summer, uh, we as a family decided to go uh, to training camp for the Steelers. Now, for you Eagles fans, this might be a little hard to understand because you don't have real training camp anymore. Uh, but we, they meet, they meet at a college campus in Latrobe, PA. Uh, and it's pretty cool because you can go and you're like right there. Like the players are right in front of you. You can interact. It's, it's just a cool experience. And um, my wife in her old job uh, had the opportunity to work with someone who's in the Steelers organization. And so she popped him a text telling him we were going. And he's like, I can get you field passes. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds awesome. Um, 
And so we show up at this camp, and we were allowed to go right out in the field. And so here's a here's a Chase Claypool signing my son's Chase Claypool jersey, which was pretty awesome. This is a T.J. Watt, the reigning defensive player of the year, and a monster of a man. Um, he's signing a, a T.J. Watt card that my son handed him. That's my son in the avocado hat. Um, and so... So it was just this cool experience where we got to go and like interact with these people. Um, but as I, as I think about it, I gotta be completely honest with you. Um, I don't really know much about these guys other than they do cool stuff on the field, right? Like TJ Watt, I mean, he just got, I follow him on Instagram, I get little snippets of his life, but really all I know about him and what I love is that he just destroys people. Um, he does supernatural things on the field, and it's crazy. Um, even Chase Claypool, this kind of speaks to this a little sadly, Chase Claypool, he got traded a few weeks ago. Like, we were so pumped. Like, we have his jersey. He's going to sign our jersey. Oh, my gosh, we saw him. Um, and yet, he got traded a few weeks ago, and we're like, wow, it was for a second-round pick. Not bad. Good choice. Like, good move. Um, so, so really, it's interesting that, like, even though I have, like, such this, like, oh, I love that. I want to go see him. Ooh, this is cool. I don't really know that much about him. It's kind of superficial, to be honest. And to be honest, too, if we got to know a lot of our athletes, some, and which we do now with social media, we're like, oh, maybe I don't want to like them. Um, but anyway, uh, I think that's kind of human nature, though, isn't it? Like, we catch on to these things uh, that are kind of cool or, or, you know, maybe make us feel better or excite us, and we'll just really just run after that without really kind of catching on to what, what exactly is happening. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of what we're seeing here in this passage, what John is, is going to maybe point out a little bit. Um, you know, as I mentioned already, the setting here is Cana, right? And that's where, uh, that's the site of Jesus's first miracle. He, he turned water into wine. Um, and also, like I said, John specifically points out that people from Galilee had seen miracles that Jesus had performed in Jerusalem at the feast. And so, honestly, the Galileans, they're gladly welcoming him home. You know, there's a buzz about this hometown miracle worker, and, and people wanted to come out and see him. Like, some of the people in Galilee probably wanted to experience more miracles. There, there, were, there were probably those who just wanted to see something cool and say they were there and they saw him. Um, you know, there might have been some people who needed something like healing or, or a problem solved. And there were some people who thought perhaps that this was the Messiah who was going to bring political relief and restore power uh, to the Jewish people. This is the guy that you wanted to see and be around because exciting things were happening. We also see in this, this passage that a, a royal official shows up, and, and he too is looking for a miracle, but, but his interest is very personal and, and quite practical. Uh, his son is ill, and he is, he is desperate for answers. Uh, more than likely, this man served in the house of Herod, uh, you know, there's a story, this story in John is very similar to stories we see in Matthew 8 and, and Luke 7, where Jesus is appealed to by a centurion from Capernaum. But, but this is a different story, though. Um, you know, in this story, we see this man is, is called a royal official. And, and this, this royal official is asking Jesus to heal his son, whereas the centurion is asking him to see, heal his servant. Um, and then also, the centurion, when he comes to Jesus, says, you don't need to come to my house, just, just say the word. Uh, whereas this royal official is begging Jesus to come to his house. And then, and then finally, we see in the response uh, that Jesus gives, it's a much different response that he gives to the centurion than, than to this uh, royal official. Um, and I point that all out because, to be honest, I've read this for years, and I'm pretty willing to bet that when I've read this passage, I've just lumped the two together. Um, but they are two different things, these stories, and Jesus is, is doing different things in them, and I think it's important to catch on to that. Um, 
So verse 46 through 47 tells us that this royal official came from, from Capernaum, which is roughly 20 miles away from Cana, um, so that he, he uh, and then he begs Jesus to come to Capernaum, back to Capernaum with him to heal his son. And I don't think this is something we should be glancing over, right? Like, I think oftentimes we'll read these things and they become familiar and we're like, okay, this is what Jesus did, this is what people did. Uh, but, but there's something really big going on here when you think about it. This is a royal official. Um, he could have sent people, right? He had authority, he had money, he could have sent someone to go get Jesus and bring him back. Um, think about, you know, the, the social aspect of it as well. You know, he's a royal official with authority and money, and he's coming to beg a traveling homeless carpenter's son to come help him. Yeah, it's, it's, there's something going on here. Like, it's bigger than just this guy uh, needs help. And I think it, it speaks to the love that this father had for his son and the desperation that he was experiencing. I imagine that he probably had exercised all other options, uh, and this, that brought him to this point. His position and his money have done, done him no good in this situation, so he has no problem making this trip in embarrassing humility if there is a chance that his son can be saved. And so how does Jesus respond to this des- desperate, hurting man? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Seems a little harsh, Jesus. Um, I'm pretty sure that if Jesus said this today, he could expect some strongly worded emails throughout the week. Um, We've seen this before, though, from Jesus. Uh, In John chapter 2, when Mary approaches him about the fact that the wine has run out, he responds with, Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. He's pretty blunt with the woman at the well, as we saw. And in other Gospels, he has a seemingly harsh response to a Canaanite woman who asks him for help because her daughter is demon-possessed. And I point this out because, you know, we live in a culture where what you say and how you say it uh, means a lot. And that, that's a good thing. Uh, there have been a lot of times where people have been insensitive, demeaning, and blatantly offensive in things that they've said to or about other people. And I think it's important that we as believers work towards being more empathetic and loving in how we speak to others. That said, though, there are times where we can, we, where we can tend to take this too far and not allow any room for truth and proper rebuke for things. The reality is sometimes we may need to hear things that don't make us feel good or are not the answers that we're looking for, but it's exactly what we need in those moments. This is something that Jesus did, as we see here, and it's something that should be happening in the church. I do want to recognize, though, that um, there are some of us in here who maybe have had some negative experiences in the church from people who were being judgmental or biased or prideful. And and that's wrong. And that's something that should be acceptable. But that's not what we're talking about here. The reality is if a church is teaching the Bible and living out the gospel, then there are going to be things that our sinful natures are not going to want to hear. There will be times that for our faith to grow we will be confronted with truth that will question our motives and shake the things that we hold on to. This is why it's so important for those of us who are in leadership. So leaders, this is for you. Um, It's so important that we lead by example. We should be open to rebuke. We should be vulnerable and the first to repent when necessary. 
When we make mistakes, we should not try to hide them or shift blame on others or justify, try to justify our wrong actions. We should not be defensive. If we're able to practice this, then hopefully, when we speak hard truths to those we lead, it comes from a place of genuine humility. And let me practice what I'm preaching by confessing that I'm not very good at this. I uh, tend to get defensive, and I'm very good at trying to justify my actions. My wife didn't say amen there, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) So what truth is Jesus trying to express here? Well, while we see that he is talking to the royal official, when he says, you will never believe, when he says that, the you in the Greek is actually plural, so it's actually more of a you all. So he's speaking to the royal official, but he's also speaking to the the whole group that that is there. Um, and, And what he's doing is he's pointing out He's beginning to point out that people are too focused on the miracles. You know, miracles aren't bad. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, you may remember, uh, as Anthony has shared a few times, that John tells us the purpose of his gospel, right? In John chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, the miracles and signs that Jesus performed had a purpose, right? Miracles were meant to point people to him so that they may believe that he is the Son of God and that he may have life in his name. The problem becomes that when we're focusing on miracles for the sake of miracles, then we're missing out on so much more. And so for us, I ask that question, what is it that we want from Jesus? And maybe for a lot of us today, we're not necessarily looking uh, for miracles, uh, but maybe we're looking for things like comfort, and status, uh, you know, through our, through our finances, or, or even through uh, politics or lawmaking in the name of Christ. Maybe what we're looking for is being tied, uh, is, is tied into being involved in, in or fighting against certain social justice movements because we believe this is what Jesus is all about. Perhaps what we want from Jesus is just to look like good people, so we go to church because that's the right thing to do. Now, politics, laws, social justice movements, and going to church aren't bad things. But if they're the end means of what we are pursuing, then they have become things that serve us and not things that point to a Savior. If we aren't looking to come to Christ first and foremost because he is our Savior who forgives our sins and makes us his own, then we aren't following Jesus. We're just following the idea of what we think he can and should be doing. So when Jesus makes this seemingly harsh statement, it is actually a grace. He's pointing out what is taking the people's eyes off of him. And people have different reactions. Uh, And Jesus, I believe, knows that. For some in the crowd, they may have heard what he said and been offended and, and left. For some in the crowd, they may have just ignored it and waited eagerly for the next miracle. And for some, uh, but notice the, the reaction of this royal official. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't get upset and leave. He doesn't pull out the, do you know who I am card? Um, You know, he doesn't even deny that he's there for a miracle. He actually presses harder into it. He is in desperate need of a savior for his son. And Jesus' statement here for that official begins to point him to something bigger. Jesus can do so much more than just save his son. And so with that, I I come to the second question, what does uh, Christ want from us? You know, notice, though Jesus' response seems harsh and points out a superficiality, 
Jesus doesn't leave the man in rebuke. There is a faith in this man, no matter how small or superficial or ignorant, whatever it might be, there's a faith there that Jesus knows is a spark that will become a saving faith. The royal official's faith is small. He doesn't know the ins and outs of theology. He doesn't know, understand how it all works, and he doesn't even know if it is going to work. All he knows is that Jesus is his only hope. I saw this quote uh, in several things I read this week. Um, it's by John Bunyan. I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would have sooner thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him. For I knew him to be my last hope. O soul, cling to thy Lord, come what may. And I feel like that's where this royal official is. He is at the point where he just knows Jesus is his only hope in this situation. And Jesus recognizes that. Jesus saw the small spark of genuine faith in this man, and in his grace and his love, he met him in that. I wonder where some of us are here today. Uh, perhaps you're in here today because you, there's something about Christ that draws you to him. You don't fully understand the whole church thing. You don't really know if you agree with all this theology. Perhaps Christians have always kind of been weird to you, or maybe some Christians have done something that you don't agree with and it bothers you. And yet, there's just something about this Jesus that keeps drawing you in, and you haven't figured it out yet. Um, you may be thinking, I think I have faith, maybe, but even if I do, it's very small. We'll just hear this and see it from this passage. Jesus will meet you there. You don't need to have all the answers or have it all figured out. You just need to bring that small amount of faith to him. You need to acknowledge that he's the only one that can do anything with that faith. He is your Savior, he is your Lord, and he loves you, and he forgives you. But when we do that, when we bring this to him, we have to be ready, because uh, he may not respond in the way that we expect or even want. This royal official wanted his son to be healed, and so he asked Jesus to come to his house to do the thing that Jesus does, right? And Christ basically only half answers this man's request. He heals his son, but he doesn't go to his house. And I think um, in doing so, there's a lot being accomplished there. Uh, Jesus has great intention and great purpose in just saying it. Uh, first of all, I believe he's not fanning the flame of miracle lust that the crowd may be having, because if he went with the man and the crowds followed and they'd see him perform this miracle and they'd be able to be there and ooh and ah, it wouldn't necessarily be fruitful for them. Uh, for this royal official, though, it draws him to grow in his faith because now this royal official has to believe and have faith that what Jesus has said is true. And so that brings us to this final question of, are we taking Jesus at his word? When Jesus answers, go, your son will live, the royal official is now faced with this crisis of faith. Is he going to take a step of faith and believe that what Jesus has just said is true? Um, he could have, honestly, in reaction, and, and honestly, when I think about it, maybe it's how I would have reacted, um, he could have felt like Jesus was just putting him off, shrugging him aside, just giving him what he wants to hear and you can move on. Um, he, could have, uh, he could have felt like, you know, this was all a sham and I wasted my, all my time. 
He could have felt devastated, broken, and defeated for wasting the last moments of his son's life on a useless trip. But that's not what happens. Look at, look at verse 50 again. It says, The man took Jesus at his word, and he depart- and departed. And i got to be honest, I actually find this to be the most powerful part of this passage. Even And yes, I know, like, Jesus is about to heal. Uh, he heals a, a dying kid. Uh, but this, to me, is so powerful that this man's response was to take Jesus at his word and go on his way. Um, I find this to be powerful. I think that there is something intimate that seems to be happening here that I don't think the written word really can convey. We have a desperate, hurting man face-to-face, with the Son of God, and he hears him say, Go, your son will live. And he immediately believes it to be true. There's something about the look in Christ's eye and the way in which he says it that turns this small spark of faith that this man has into a believing and trusting faith. Jesus' words spoke to this man's heart in such a way that all he could do was trust him. And Jesus is not done yet. We read that while he's still journeying home, he's met by his servants with the news that his son was living. I read in a few different commentaries, there's like a little bit of a a debate or they like to talk about, uh, they do the math, like what time he may have left. And then the the servants came and it was the next day and this kid was held at one o'clock. And, you know, some people like to say that this man's faith was so strong that he just took his time getting home. Like he didn't rush home. I don't know. That may or may not be true. Uh, But what is interesting here is that um, the last thing that he heard from Jesus was, your son will live. The first thing he hears from his servants is, your son is alive. Um, His faith is now spurred even more so. And he, he has to ask the question, what time did he get better? And they respond, the fever left him at one in the afternoon. And so he's, he's putting it all together in his mind, you know, probably doing the math, looking at the sun. I don't know what they did back then, um, but just trying to figure it all out. And he realizes that that's the exact time that Jesus said, go, your son will live. He went to Jesus with a desperate small faith. He left Jesus by taking a huge step of faith. And now in this miracle, Jesus meets him on the road, basically, affirming his faith. And this man goes from desperately looking for a savior for his son to a man who has met his own savior. He's gone from being a sort of believer in Christ to a full-blown follower of Christ. And his act of faith, we see, brings the power of Christ to his whole household, and they all believe. I saw in some commentaries where they comment on the fact in Luke 7, um, there's there's a woman... Uh, I think it's Luke 7 or 8, a a woman named Joanna who's the the wife of Chusa who works in the household of Aaron, or Herod. And they speculate, you know, there may not have been a lot of believers in the household of Herod at that time, so it could be that that she is is, uh, his wife, the wife of this royal official, and now she's serving Jesus. Um, I don't know about you as as I kind of think about this, Uh, But as I read this, I'm convicted because I have to ask myself that final question. Am I taking Jesus at his word? Sadly, I I have to confess, more often than not, I forget the promises of Christ. And I seek my own answers or I get frustrated when he doesn't do things the way I think he should. And it makes me wonder how much of my stress, my anger, my fears would be relieved if I just took Jesus at his word. And I got to tell you, I praise God 
that his grace uh, and patience are abundant in my life, and that even in my stress and anxiety and, and fear, he meets me there. He doesn't leave me alone in it. Now, uh, earlier, I spoke to those who maybe wrestle with what they believe about Jesus but are still drawn to him. Now I want to speak to those of you who are here today who know Jesus, but perhaps you're struggling uh, with circumstances that are very difficult. Perhaps your circumstances are such that you are frustrated and, and maybe even doubt has crept in. Jesus, it's the same. He wants you to come to him in faith even if that faith is weak and wavering because of your circumstances. He will meet you where you are. Charles Spurgeon says uh, of the official, the royal official and those who are suffering, he says, had he been without trial, he might have lived forgetful of his God and Savior, but sorrow came to his house, and it was God's angel in disguise. It may be, dear friend, that you are in trouble this morning, and if so, I pray that affection may be the black horse upon which mercy shall ride to your door. Remember, how Jesus meets us in our faith doesn't always look how we expect or even how we want it to. For this man, it meant healing of his son, and God can and will do in certain situations according to his will and purpose. He will do those sort of things. But I do want to recognize that there are those in our midst who have lost loved ones and sadly even children And a story like this can sting. Please hear that the point of this story isn't that Jesus heals everyone physically. We don't see that in the Bible. John the Baptist dies while Jesus is walking around on earth. All of his apostles are are killed serving him. Um, The point of this story is that we need to go to Jesus in our trials and our suffering, and he will meet us there wherever we are in our faith. He may not bring the kind of healing we seek, but he will bring us comfort and peace. And we can always take him at his word that he is the light of the world, that in him is eternal life, and death does not have the final victory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your truth and the promise of this story that, Lord, whatever it is that afflicts us, Lord, whatever it is that... um, is hurting us or or whatever, Lord, we can come to you in faith, even when that faith is weak, even when that faith is struggling. So, Lord, I pray for those here today, those who are are suffering from whatever the circumstances may be, that they would just bring that faith to you, Lord, that they would turn to you and that you would meet them, Lord, that you would bring peace and comfort to their hearts, that they would see you and that they would know you. Lord, I I pray for all of us here, especially as we head into this Advent season and the, the holidays and everything, uh, much like the Galileans, we can get so focused. They focus on the miracles and miss Jesus. We can get focused on all the stuff and miss why we're celebrating Christmas or what we're actually waiting for in Advent. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts when we focus on things that are not of you, that are not you. Lord, help us to, to see Jesus in this season. And Lord, I pray that um, we would lift up one another up in prayer, that we'd be encouraging to each other. Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs prayer, I pray um, that they would seek someone to pray. Uh, yeah, thank you again. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.